Hi everyone and welcome to the Maker Market podcast, the home of content marketing secrets for manufacturers. I'm Lawrence Chapman and I'm the content lead here at Axe and Garside. With competition fierce in the manufacturing industry, effective product positioning is imperative. So, who better to learn from than someone who's been there, done it, and gone toe-to-toe with PlayStation in the process? During this episode, I'm thrilled to welcome esteemed product marketer and positioning expert, Harvey Lee. During his distinguished career, Harvey's worked at globally recognized brands including Virgin, and most notably Microsoft, where he played a vital role in bringing the original and iconic Xbox games console to market. In a career spanning 25 years, he's also worked with the likes of Kaspersky, Avast and Seiko Epson, and has a track record of helping businesses of all shapes, sizes and growth stages find the true value of their product or services. Now, he's sharing his expertise on how you can use content marketing to position your product in a competitive market. So thanks for, so much for joining me, Harvey. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Oh, not a problem at all, mate. So um, first and foremost, if we just um, dive straight into the whole Xbox story, um, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear about that. So um, yeah. could you just share some insights from your experience working on the launch of the original Xbox and just tell us how Microsoft used content marketing to position the product in such um or possibly one of the most competitive industries that's out there in the gaming uh, in the gaming sphere. Well, it is actually. I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned that because there is a difference when uh, you do it when you're a new market entrant into a, a category that is uh, low on competitors, or if you're in a category that is fiercely contested and has incumbent incumbent competitors, and and you know that there, there are major differences between the two. So in in this case, you know our competition predominantly was Sony and to a to a to a different extent was uh Nintendo and um what was interesting about what's interesting about Xbox is because it's everybody just thinks about the hardware itself but the reality of it is it's an ecosystem so there's a multitude of complexity so if we think about the first Xbox and we think about the console itself the actual box itself uh, one of the key learnings from its positioning really was that um, it was positioned as the most powerful console in the world uh, at the time in 2001, 2002, which it was. It was a, that was a functional, explicit description of actually what it was. Um, but the reality of the matter was that you know, after a year or two, the, the actual platform itself, not just the console itself, but the whole platform, got repositioned by the actual customers themselves because of their experience. And the key takeaway here was that even though positioning is all about intent, your intent on the market and your intent for position, for perception from your target customers, unless you're explicitly clear about what that positioning is and critically it rings true and you deliver on it, you run the risk of actually your customers positioning them positioning you and run the risk of being positioned as an alternative to what you intended and and the xbox example was even though it was the most powerful console in the world at the time it got positioned or repositioned by the audience as the shooter box and the reason it was repositioned as the shooter box in the eyes of the audience was that halo being its kind of signature game in the whole first generation, really, 
attached to the console at a rate of about 50%. So for every two consoles sold, one would sell with a copy of Halo. And because it was an all-out action game and there wasn't really another game from a sales point of view that, that touched it, we had some great games, but none that really touched it. The perception was that this console was really all about not just one game, but really about shooter games, because that was what made up the majority of the portfolio. So the key lesson is, no matter what your intent on the market is, unless you actually deliver on that intent explicitly and consistently, you run the risk of being repositioned either out of consideration in the eyes of the target audience. So that's yeah. number one. Yeah. The, no. the second one about content. Um, you mentioned uh, what content, you know, did we use? Uh, there's a great case study called uh, I Love Bees. And I would, I would encourage anybody listening or watching to go and Google I Love Bees uh, Xbox um, on the Internet, which is a great overview of the campaign that the company ran for Halo 2. And it was a content campaign um, and it built up the excitement for the uh for the launch of that game which was highly anticipated it was the sequel to a very successful game but it used content and treasure hunts and all sorts of really interesting thoughtful engagement practices around content um sort of identifying certain things in the storyline and going to find easter eggs i mean it was a real hands-on piece of engagement delivered through content which mobilized an audience that built up an enormous amount of engagement up until the actual release of the game. So if you wanted to get deeper into that case study, I would encourage anybody to go and Google or search for I Love Bees, Halo 2 or Xbox, uh, and read the story about that content play because it was it was a real benchmark in its day, and I still think it stands the test of time now, 20 years later. You know, I'll definitely be sure to uh, to chat that out. I've never heard of it myself, so um, you know, I'll, um, I'll chat that out. Cheers, Harvey. Um, so you mentioned um, very briefly, you kind of touched on, um, you know, obviously Sony with the PlayStation and you know Nintendo at the time being um, being Microsoft's core competitors, really. Um, mm. How can manufacturers leverage um, competitive intelligence to uncover, uh, sorry, to identify and uncover content gaps in their competitors' strategies? and um, almost like in turn position themselves as market leaders through their content mm. efforts? Well, I think that there's a risk um, in thinking about the question, that there's a risk about being too focused on the competition. Obviously, we need to be focused on the competition and competitive alternatives, which, um, which don't always necessitate the fact that the competitive alternative for a customer, regardless of what sector you're in, actually might not be another company. It might be inertia. It might be no decision. It might be other things, certain behaviors or workarounds. There's all sorts of um, different lenses in which to look at competition. It, it, we always default to, oh, it's company A and company B. But actually, when you get deep into the insights, you actually may discover it's not that at all. If you consider in B2B, 50% of sales pitches end up in no decision. Um, and you hit, uh, risk management, inertia, all sorts of other decision-making things. It's got nothing to do with the competition, uh, actually. So that's number one. The second is that we we also run the risk of, if we're, if we're looking at our competitor companies, not just the alternatives, for gaps in their content plan, sure, it's, it's useful to understand those. But 
I, just a word of caution that if you're going to base your content strategy purely or based on majority of what your comp your competitors are not doing, you assume that what they're doing is right and working, right? Which is a dangerous assumption to make because you don't know or we don't know, right? And the other thing is, it's a little bit nasal gazing, na nasal gazing in that we're looking at ourselves and we're looking at other companies and thinking, is there an opportunity? And maybe there is, I don't wish to be disingenuous to the question, but what's m potentially more important is getting deeper into the insight of the category and deeper into the insight of our specific customers and identifying what they need rather than what the competition is or isn't delivering. Now, if it just happens to match that the competition are not delivering it, then it's a double win, isn't it? But I think that the, the real answer to the question is about perspective and just focusing on the customer rather than focusing on the other companies. The other thing, just to wrap up on this one, is that there's always a risk that you might be seen as me too, right? If if what you're doing, even if it's a gap with a competitor's um, content plan, uh, is there and it's to be taken, does it really differentiate you in a, in a unique way or not? It's just an open question. And it's the kind of question that we have to all we all have to ask ourselves with some great humility. And that really, um, you know, really almost like serves as a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you next. To me. So um, how can manufacturers use content to actually differentiate the products in a compelling um, in a compelling manner and use that to convert more prospects into customers? Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's a little bit like what came first, you know, the cart or the horse. And for me, the reality of the matter is content is part of uh our execution strategy if we think of marketing in three key pillars we think of diagnosis strategy and and execution let's call it the go-to-market motion right you can argue that the the content pieces sits within the go-to-market motion but th there was there's two other big pieces that come before that that act as inputs into that so the way that i would take a look at this is that i would just take a step backwards internally and look at our positioning first so you mentioned about unique differentiation and you unique differentiation is a key pillar of positioning so if our positioning isn't as good as it needs to be or as effective as it needs to be you need to think of your everyone should think about positioning as the foundations of a house or the foundations of a building if that's not rock solid everything that we do on top will be a bit wobbly right at best, including all of our content. So make sure we've got that really tight, crisp positioning where we are already uniquely differentiated through our positioning. It's a little, it's it's quite tough to have differentiated content on generic, commoditized, me too kind of positioning. If we are not discernibly uniquely differentiated in our positioning, but our content is, then you know, is what we're is what we're saying actually true? We we may be prom we may be over promising, right? So get the foundations right, and then from that uniquely differentiated position, you take your positioning canvas and then you build out your content from there because you know in which path to follow, and you know that you'll be on once you've tested your positioning, 
and we can talk about that if we, if we have time. Once you've tested your positioning, then your content should just follow and just flow through, really. But to to make the argument that content could be uniquely positioned or uniquely valuable if your position, if your actual product or company position isn't, there's a risk for a disconnect. So I would encourage all content teams, all companies, you know, manufacturing as well, to just take a step back and look at your positioning and make sure it's uniquely differentiated. Then you won't go far wrong with your content. Are you ready to transform your manufacturing marketing strategy? Look no further. Introducing Manufacturing Marketing Strategies for Success, your comprehensive guide to succeeding in the manufacturing landscape brought to you by Axon Garside. Uncover the evolution of manufacturing and its profound implications for your marketing approach and master the best practices you need to thrive in a crowded marketplace. Learn how to elevate your brand, nurture leads into bona fide customers and deploy powerful marketing tactics. And that's not all. Discover methods for measuring your marketing success, why inbound marketing can take your manufacturing marketing to unprecedented heights, why you really ought to introduce podcast marketing into your strategy, plus much more. It's essential, it's comprehensive, and it's free. Visit www.axengarside.com forward slash manufacturing marketing guide and begin your journey to manufacturing marketing excellence. Now, that sounds great. And um, in terms of, um, I mean, obviously you've, in your experience, you've uh, been part of campaigns whereby um, you've obviously managed to compete in, as we've said already, you know, really competitive markets. But um, looking at the opposite end of the spectrum, what are some of the, almost like the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies make when trying to compete in those markets? Yeah, I, I think there's, this. I mean, the list is long, right? So, uh, but I think there's two fundamental ones of which the majority of other potential mistakes sort of hang off. The, the, the first one is not getting the positioning right, right? And not having the right level of insights, the time, the patience, the internal orientation to the market of the customer to get that positioning right. Um, unfortunately, a lot of positioning is really poor. There's still companies asking for old-fashioned positioning statements and, and positioning is just not done right. Um, which why, in in a way, in, in tech, it's become a bit of a cottage industry in itself, the positioning industry, because it's it, it it's needed. So I, I think number one is get your positioning really crisp and tight. Nothing good can happen unless that happens. The second is, is one around orientation. And unfortunately, this is probably the biggest one. And I've been in big companies and medium-sized companies where you would be shocked and surprised about how internal thinking or how internally orientated a company might be. And even though they may say, you know, we're focused on the customer, uh, we're customer centric. Every time I hear a big company say we're customer centric, I slightly roll my eyes thinking, are you really, or is it just a buzzword? Uh, so, cause it's very easy to say, and it's a buzz phrase and everybody wants to be seen as sort of customer centric. But the reality of it is it's a way of life. It's it's an orientation. It's in the DNA of your organization to genuinely be market orientated or customer orientated, not product orientated, not sales orientated, tech orientated or any other kind of orientation, um, but genuinely looking after the and seeking the interests of the customer and putting the customer first. And like I say, I think the biggest mistake a lot of companies make is we say a lot about it 
but then our actions don't necessarily follow through. And, you know, for those of us who have been around a little while, um, you know, we can see it a mile off. We can you almost smell it in the air. But the reality of it is it makes it very difficult uh, to be in an operating, a, a, a constructive operating environment when that's the case. Um, you'll see a lot of startups now, uh, regardless of whether it's manufacturing or tech, um, genuinely putting the customers at the center of absolutely everything that they do, uh, even if on face value, maybe that investment or that time doesn't make sense because in the long, in the long run, generally it will pay off. So I think those are the two main ones. And I think it's, it's a truism for all companies and I just see it all too often, especially the orientation part. Sure. And um, obviously, you know, you've, you know, you've kind of mentioned it already, but, you know, positioning, you know, it's such a, if it's done in such a way that it isn't kind of built on firm foundations and it can kind of fall flat on its face a little bit, but um, what challenges might manufacturers face in particular, um, do you think, um, Harvey, when trying to almost communicate the value of their products, given the fact that nine times out of 10, they are going to be quite technical and how can they overcome these challenges? So, uh... So I think that um, when we think about communication, um, assuming that we get our positioning right, um, then our messaging and the articulation of our messaging, which is copy, they're two different things. I think people make the mistake that they think messaging is copy. Uh, messaging is what we want to say. Copy is how we say it, right? It's two different stages. Depending on the channel in which we're trying to articulate that, whether it's in a sales pitch, or whether it's through, you know, open market uh, communications. I think making sure that the, the jump from positioning to articulation is the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes companies make, because even if you get crisp and tight positioning and and it's been validated in, in some way, there's always a huge risk, um, especially in technical uh, landscapes, manufacturing or tech, where the jump from position to articulation doesn't make it. Um, it's like having two can two edges of canyons and the, the jump from positioning is, is getting over towards messaging, but it sort of falls short and goes down the cannon canyon. And um, a lot of that, the, there's multitudes of reasons for that. And, you know, te technicality and complexity and being able to articulate complexity is one of those reasons, right? Where it just falls away. And that's where I think that, um, from experience, having a really, really crisp, solid messaging guide uh, for your organization where we learn, test and iterate that messaging on how we want to articulate and what the messages that we want to convey in simple terms and in tone are well tested. And once that messaging guide is iterated and tested and signed upon, it's an iterative process, right? then we can bring in the content team and the copywriters once that messaging guide is done. Let's say all the technical terminology, we find ways to articulate it, whether it's through stories, whether it's through metaphors, however it's going to be articulated. And then we bring the content, the copywriting team in to actually write the copy that's going to be customer facing. So I think a lot of companies don't understand the, the move from positioning to messaging to copy. They think we go straight from positioning to copy. And that's a huge gap to fill. It's this like it's the leap over the canyon for most organizations. And unfortunately, too, too many fall in between the very large cracks. 
Yeah, sure. And um, I guess as part of that, it's almost you know, going back to you know the messaging copy side of things. It's um, it, part of that is almost trying to communicate to your audience, you know, the actual value um, of your solution. Um, so taking that into consideration, how can manufacturers use content marketing techniques to position their products as um, almost like the the most valuable products or the MP, MVP products in their respective market? Well, I think there's a couple of there's a couple of points. So not not to labour the point about positioning, but making sure that obviously you've got that right. I think that especially in technical spheres, um, that one of the challenges all technical companies have is how to be able to articulate com uh, complex concepts to a buyer who's not technical. And um, that's 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 common through the tech industry. It's also common through manufacturing. And it, it's it's common through the consumer landscape uh, as well, and and I think a lot of organisations fail to grasp that uh, actually buyers and audiences, you know, sellers of technology, we're talking to human. It's still a human to human business. So our marketers and our content teams really need to get under the skin of how best to articulate complex concepts and there's, there's a number of ways you, you, you some of these you'll know already yourself one of which one of my favorites i'll tell you a little a little case study one of my favorites was when i was working in cybersecurity. there's nothing more technical than cybersecurity, and even on the concept or even on the the um the consumer side um one of the things we knew about this um category was there was a lack of engagement and the lack of engagement uh, from from the market came due to the fact that it was a high obligation, low interest category, people needed it, but didn't really want to spend any time consuming content about it. So our challenge was how do we articulate something complicated that people need that they're not really interested in? That was our challenge. Um, video games is the opposite. People don't need it, but they're super interested in it. It's almost like the reverse. <laughs> it's almost the reverse. Um, so in cyber, especially on the consumer side, it's like, well, how are we going to, uh, we got great positioning. We've got a great new piece of technology or a great new, um, innovative, uh, product. How are we going to articulate it through content? How are we going to articulate it to the market? And our research, we did some incredible, um, field research, qualitative field research, where we uncovered this concept, which we ended up calling conceptual clarity. We gave it a name. And basically what we learned was that in technical terms, certainly in this particular category, and you know, your audience has to find out what's right for them in their particular category. In this particular category of cyber, in order to build trust, which was needed to make an informed decision about a product that they didn't really care about, but needed, right? In order to build that trust, the user needed to understand how it worked and understand how the benefit was. But the challenge that we had was that they weren't interested. So how do you get someone who's not interested to understand a technical concept quickly to build trust? So we uncovered this, um, we uncovered this issue in the field research and we came up with this um, concept called conceptual clarity where we used everyday simple metaphors as kind of one-liners to explain how something worked and what the benefit was. Right. So when we talk about VPN, which was like a virtual private network, which you know people in tech will understand, but most people on the street, 95% of people on the street have no clue what it is or even use it. Um, 
we describe when when you say oh it's a tunnel it's an encrypted tunnel for your data to go through people sort of start zoning out and like yeah i'm not interested I, I don't care but when you describe it and articulate that value as oh it's like a police escort for your data right it brings conceptual clarity to a technical concept so i would you know encourage your audience to think well how can we articulate technical concepts in simple and easy to understand ways for our audience in our category. But what it requires from you is to have that fundamental understanding of your category and how the mechanics and the constructs of it work and how they consume data, how they read messages or don't read messages in this particular case and how you're going to use your data and the way that you do your messaging to get around that. Because there's, by able being able to tailor it will make it effective. No, so yeah, that makes total sense. It's almost like just um, if I wanted to use a better expression, just explaining it in layman's terms, right? Um, just trying yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I, I once had a CEO of a, of a FTSE one hundred company tell me it was only a few years ago. He said, "Harvey, just tell me why I should buy this." as if we're going down to the pub or going to a bar for a drink, right? And he was the COO of a very technical company. And when you know, I made earlier the point about it's all of our businesses, I don't care how technical it is, they're human to human businesses. Then, you know, we're not, we're not software selling software to other software. We're selling product. We are people talking and selling to other people. And to your point, we need to articulate that as simple as possible. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about some of the mistakes that people make um, or that companies make, rather. Um, I guess that is kind of one of the things that people almost don't attribute enough value to sometimes. Is to just make it as human-centric as possible. Um, it, you know, you can't underestimate or devalue um, the importance yeah. of just being human and speaking to people yeah. like they're a human. It, it, it's true. But again, you know, the risk at the organizational level is that some of these things descend into buzzwords, right? Mm. So we're customer centric, we're human, human to human, or whatever it would be. And you hear it a lot, you read it on all the web pages, and it gets to a point where everybody's saying it. But you know, the proof of the pudding is when the rubber hits the road, right? So there's some more buzzwords for you. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but really, it's in the eating. So Again, go back to getting back to those deep insights, understanding the con the concepts and the constructs of how your category works and how people interact with it and how they want to consume or what they do understand, what they don't understand, how they'd like to understand it. Um, really understanding that is quite a bit of work. and um, But you need to put the work in. You, there's no shortcuts. If there's one thing you take away from this is, there's no shortcut. So you can't just say, this is our product. This is why we think it's great. Let's write something. Um, that, you know, some, to someone like me as a dyed-in-the-wall marketer of I don't know how many decades is tantamount to throwing up as much mud on the wall and hoping it sticks. Um, it takes really high-quality, thoughtful marketing and, and insight work to work this out and deconstruct it and then, con then construct it back into something meaningful and differentiated. And looking at um, almost like taking that and thinking of, you know, the whole looking at it in a, you know, is it meaningful? It me sorry, is it meaningful? Is it differentiated? 
what metrics and KPIs should manufacturers track to measure the success of their positioning strategies and make sure that it is actually working? Well, I, th- I mean the I mean the ultimate measure for a posi- for, to test if your positioning is working. And let's be clear, you won't know if it's working until it's active in the market. No matter how much you've tested it in research, which you need to do anyway, you won't know whether it's working. So the ultimate measure of uh, measuring your positioning is conversion rates in the sales pitch. Did your customer conversions increase after you in- introduced your new positioning? I mean, it's the ultimate, ultimate metric, right? So you want to say, you want to be able to say, this was our conversion rate with sales team A before we, before, and then after we've refreshed our positioning or however you want to um, uh, call it, after after we've changed our positioning or refreshed our positioning and we and we had a new sales pitch deck our conversion rate went up by five percent and it means x more dollars or x more pounds or x more euros that's the ultimate guide right if you change your positioning but you don't change your sales pitch deck you're not going to see any change because the new positioning isn't being articulated if you change your positioning you change your sales pitch deck and and your conversion rate stays the same Either the positioning isn't being well articulated in the sales pitch deck and the structure and the way that's been put together, or you haven't got the right positioning. So you need to go back. So really the the best way to test it is through the sales pitch process. I'd recommend, you know, if you're going to change your positioning or refresh it, um, try it out on half a dozen customers first, get some feedback, make it a sort of low level iterative process and keep iterating until you, until you hit the jackpot until it's like, okay, we're as optimized as we can be and then roll it out to the whole market. I mean, there's, there's other ways too that you can measure it, but in the B2B space and then technically in technical terms, if you're an organization selling to other organizations, ultimately it comes down to sales conversions. That's great. Harvey, thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome chatting with you um, and catching up. Uh, you know, obviously we know each other previous to this episode, but um, before uh, before we shoot off, um, obviously exciting news on, on your side. Um, you've got a brand new book coming out next year. If, if you'd like to just yeah. tell the listeners about it. Yeah, well, if you don't mind, a shameless plug. Uh, February, uh, Backstreet Pass hits the streets and the internet, you know, February 14th. It's... Uh, my first book, it comes out February 14th, Valentine's Day, a date that no one can forget. And um, basically, it's a career and personal development book. It's a business book that's far from conventional. And the reason it's far from conventional is that the career and personal development aspect of the book is wrapped around a true rock and roll story because I used to be in the music business. Um, so I've used all my, I've got all my sort of anecdotal music business stories here, the video games stories in here, including four chapters on Xbox and how it launched and the work that we did. Um, so uh, I've been told it's an inspirational read. It's a business book that's far from conventional. It's called Backstage Pass. It's available on all the Amazons around the world. Uh, and in the United States, it's Barnes and Noble and Walmart and everywhere you could possibly imagine. And uh, I can't wait. For, I can't wait for it to to be out in February, actually. But it's available for pre order now. There it is. Yeah, I've um, had a little bit of a sneak peek, so um, I can back Harvey on this. It is a really good read, so make sure that you check it out. Harvey, thank you so so much for your time. It's been awesome. Um, really appreciate it. All the very best. Thanks very much. Take care. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Make and Market podcast. Please leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show to help more manufacturers like you enhance their marketing strategies. If you're interested in joining me as a guest, please contact me at lawrence.chapman at axengarside.com. Don't forget to explore a wealth of manufacturing content on our website, www.axengarside.com and join our live LinkedIn webinar, Marketing Rev Up, hosted by our head of marketing, Rob White, every other Wednesday. For the latest updates, hit the subscribe button on your chosen platform and stay tuned for more upcoming episodes.